Monday, December 10th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 187 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is the brilliant, inimitable, uh, utterly virtuosic cellist, Jay Campbell. Let's have a listen. Here he is uh, in a duo with the cellist Mike Nicholas, who you might remember from being on the show a couple years ago. Uh, In the words of Mike Nicholas, as well as the composer whose work they're performing here, John Zorn, I have heard Jay described as the best cellist in the world. And I'm not even kidding. Today on the show, Jay Campbell. Before we get into it, I took the week off last week. Thanks for being patient. I don't know if you guys, I I doubt any of you have noticed, but I started doing a thing uh, a few months ago uh, where every eight weeks I take a Monday off. Uh, So that's what that is. Every eight weeks, take a Monday off. I've been been doing that for pretty much all year. Um, I don't know if it's, you know, anyone's noticed, but that's what's up. Everything's okay. We're coming up on the end of the year, and I've got some good episodes coming your way. Some good conversations. I got some round twos coming up. People coming back for for their second appearance on the podcast. Uh, Usually the people that I call up for that are the people, um, obviously, who I dig, but who, you know, over time, I really got a lot of response saying, hey, that was a really great one. I could have listened to that forever. That's primarily who I'm calling back for those things. That's why Matt Ship was here. Um, So we got some of those coming up. I've got, ooh, man, I've got a lot of conversations coming up with interpreters of new music. You dig? New music as in, you know, complex contemporary composition. Uh, and that's certainly what's what's the topic uh, today with Jay Campbell. Do you guys know Jay? Uh, he is really pretty unique. Um, I, we, we, you know, we're Facebook friends and I'd seen him play a bunch of times. Uh, he's kind of Zorn's go, one of Zorn's go-to cello people now for his classical stuff, you know, for years for, for his projects where he was writing for classical instruments, Fred Sherry was his guy, you know, Fred Sherry is, uh, for, for decades has really been the cello guy for new music. Uh, I, I, it's like Fred Sherry is shorthand for cello virtuoso and now that fred is reaching a a point in his life and career where he's sort of taking a step back from from performance you're seeing people like jay campbell and mike nicholas emerge as as really the prominent cello players uh of of new music both jay and and mike studied with fred sherry so so if you I, you know go back to episode ninety five if you're if you're curious about Mike I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about Jay but just really quickly um, these if you listen to these two episodes side by side they might make for a nice companion episodes Jay uh, grew up in Berkeley California we talk about that a bit today um, his parents don't sound exactly like uh, typical Berkeley parents. Um, and certainly Jay's path, his trajectory, his musical uh, voyage has been very untypical. Uh, you'll hear a lot about that today. You know, it, it, at least in my mind, if I'm going to stereotype classical musicians, you know, they tend to be these really uh, t- 
tight-chested, sort of lonely, unfun people, and that's definitely not the case with Jay. He's worked with everyone in new music. Uh, for the last couple of years, he's been the cellist in the Jack Quartet. Uh, he has interpreted pieces and worked closely with Elliot Carter, with John Adams, with John Zorn, with Pierre Boulez, uh, you know, the heavies, the heavy, heavy, heavies. And he's, you know, he's young. This guy ain't going anywhere. He's going to be around for a while uh, tackling incredibly complex music and doing it with uh, a real sense of, of liveliness and soulfulness, you know. It's been said that uh, the best interpretations of classical music, you know, when you're hearing them, they sound like they're improvised. It's been said. I get that with Jay. Um, just an unbelievable musician. And, and as you'll hear today, a really sweet guy. Really, really, really a fun guy. If you want to find out more about Jay, go to j-campbell.net. Check him out. Uh, you don't, you don't hear a lot of people execute music at the level that he does. It's, it's pretty thrilling stuff. J-Campbell.net. If you're enjoying this show, please rate and review it in iTunes. That helps. And if you're really, really enjoying it and, uh, you want to, you want to, you want to, uh, throw a little Christmas cheer my way, go to the Patreon, www.patreon.com slash 5049 podcast. Consider becoming a monthly donor. It helps. You dig. Um, and that's it. Here is my conversation with Jay Campbell. I got it used at Amoeba Records in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was fifteen dollars and ninety nine cents. Are you fucking serious? <laughs> I am. That was two years ago. So my guess is you could probably get it for like ten ninety nine now. Jesus Christ! Because new, that's like hundreds of dollars. Yeah. I remember, like I've looked at that. I looked at it collection before. Like years ago, I saw it at Amoeba in Hollywood, and it was like three hundred bucks. And I was like, I should do it. I should pull the trigger. Yeah, I should yeah, just yeah. fucking do it. Yeah, right. Right. And I'm glad I waited. <laughs> it was under twenty dollars. That's so much music, man. It's a lot of music. <laughs> I mean, record shopping now is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Do you still buy shit physically? Um, I you know, mostly I just like I get records from my friends. Right. Um, who are like making records, but Right. Um No, I don't I don't like buy records unless it's like something really unusual or I don't know, maybe I'll like grab an occasional vinyl or something like that, but yeah. yeah, generally no. Did you grow up listening to? I mean, like, like geeking out on records or like? No, not really, not too much. You grew up but geeking out on scores. Scores, yeah. Yeah. Um, scores. I mean, a little bit of records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're from San Francisco. Yeah, like Berkeley, East Bay. Oh, really? Yeah. Berkeley is fucking cool. Love Berkeley. Is Berkeley, Berkeley like Berkeley? Is, I feel like it's still yeah. Berkeley, right? Yes. Berkeley, like San Francisco's not anymore. And Oakland is. Oakland is like. Oakland's crazy. Like, it used to not... Like, Oakland wasn't a place that you, like, really spent time in. It was, like, it was a really dangerous place. It was, like, a go good place to get shot. Yeah. Yeah. Oakland was, was crazy. Right. 
um, I think East Oakland and then I actually live closer to Richmond, but like those two places, I think, I think they were like tied for like the highest murder um, per capita. In, in California, or I think in the country, really, because they're <laughs> when you were growing they're, up, because they're much smaller than a place like Baltimore, for example. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so it was just crazy. Like Oakland was just like a place you generally tried to stay away from, and um, I mean now it's now it's like Park Slope. <laughs> Is it? Re- it's already gone. It's not even like Bushwick anymore. It's like now. Oh, it's like Crested already. Yeah, yeah. Oh Jesus it's Christ! It's already over. I've never even been to Oakland, but I know that. Like I, I just I like I hear I, I I hear that I I've heard from you know that like the turn has happened very rapidly from being like Bushwick into Williamsburg to not being yeah well I remember there were some venues I used to go over there because it was um like Mills College was over there so right I'd see concerts in Oakland um, when I was in high school it was just like you know weird electronic stuff and I remember seeing Henry Kaiser when I was like fourteen really <laughs> out there because he lives in he lives out there the Oakland Hills or something yeah like yeah that. yeah and uh, yeah it was just like. There wasn't really any of that. It was just it happened to be a venue. There happened to be this place where these creative people were doing this stuff. Uh-huh. And there wasn't any kind of, you know, cultural capital wrapped up in like where you're living or what you're wearing, all this stuff. Right. It seems pretty different now. I mean, is Berkeley my wife uh she went to UC Berkeley and lived oh. there for a number of years. Um is it is it kinda like does it feel like a college town? Yeah, depending on what part you're in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, there's like 30,000 students there. So you really feel it when school is in session versus not in session. Right. Especially up like near the campus for sure. Yeah. Did your parents work there? No, no, they were just, well, actually, I mean, I grew up like maybe 30 minutes north of Berkeley till I was like 12 and then my parents moved closer to Berkeley. Um, but I was, I grew up in this like shitty ass town (laughs) called Rodeo where the, uh, the one thing in town was the factory that would always leak. Like, I remember reading about this, like, Zappa thing where he was, he just, like, had all these images of, like, gas masks growing up and, like, it was something that stuck with him. It was, like, there's, like, a similar thing that I felt stuck with me where... In Rodeo? Yeah, because there used to be this uh, Union oil refinery up there that was basically the only thing in town except, like, the fucking tackle shop or something. <laughs> and... Like, it would leak all the time. Wait. Like, all these sirens would go off, and you'd have to go inside, close all your windows. And on, like, a perfectly sunny day, when it, when it would stop, you go back outside. Like, it's dry, but the grass is slick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just like... I feel like Californians have, like, uh, both northern and southern have, like, a really good glimpse of the future, like, that the rest of the country hasn't really gotten yet. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. all fires and shit. And like, yeah, I mean, yeah. like it's literally on fire right now, and yes. people in San yeah, Francisco are walking around with gas masks or uh, yeah, what do you call yeah. it like um, the the protective mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The like the surgical mask type yeah. Of things. Yeah, or like you go I was to LA. something really fucked up about uh-huh. that actually. That like um, I was reading an article about the 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 now burgeoning market of like designer face masks. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, yeah, like of forty, fifty, like fifty dollar, like. You know, like designer, <laughs> like supreme. <laughs> but is shit. it is it because it's like branded with something, or is it oh, like yeah, yeah, like a dude yeah. with like an astute eye, like figuring out the right contour? To like... Oh no, no, it's just purely like how can we make money off people like trying to breathe decent air? <laughs> it's so fucked, man. <laughs> Disgusting. It's but it's little things like that. In California, like if you go like in L.A. and this has been the policy for a while, like if you yeah. go to a restaurant, they don't off they don't put down water. Um, really? Immediately, you have to ask for water. Whoa. And that was a mandate by the city, which is like, we have a very limited water supply. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of water is being wasted this way. Right, right. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just like a little tiny taste of the future. 
Yeah. That's happening very fucking quickly. Well, people don't know where the water comes from. People think it just like falls out of the fucking faucet. Is that? From nowhere, you know? You know, I was having this conversation with a friend the other day about cultural literacy and how I've like, I've made an official like decision to no longer be polite to people who I find to be culturally illiterate. Uh-huh. Yeah, just, yeah. Like, I'll, I'll be a condescending dick. Like, I don't yeah. fucking care. You know, like, if people don't know, like, really basic things. Right. So we started, like, drafting up, like, cultural literacy tests. Uh-huh. And what... <laughs> like, that's, like, a, be a really good example. Like, hey, where does water come from? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, people probably don't even know here. I don't think most people... You know? I think you would be deeply disturbed if you knew how little most people know. Not to yeah. say that, like, I, I've known you for, like, ten minutes. But, like, we're geniuses, but, like... I think if you showed like a picture of a cello, for instance, to right. most people, they probably wouldn't know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Especially here. I mean, like cultural literacy is not something that's valued in American culture. I think for sure. It's really bleak. I mean, it's yeah, it's pretty grim. Like I, I feel like when I go over to certain Western European countries, it's like so wrapped up in their heritage that yeah. like they all grow up playing instruments and stuff. And it's not like that means anything good or bad about it but you know everyone does know what a violin or a cello is right here you know they treat you like a fucking bum (laughs) 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 well have you seen that that scorsese movie uh gangs of new york yeah i took a really just reading about that story actually like two nights ago really yeah about the um about the fucking the pond that chinatown is built over Uh uh-huh um, where like you know during that period of of like the four or five corners gangs and stuff like right. that that just the amount of shit they were putting into that <laughs> like pond. actual feces yeah, oh just everything right like industrial runoff waste whatever shit dead bodies like yeah, yeah yeah like you know the gangsters would just like throw corpses into this <laughs> <pond>. <laughs> like well there's there's a little park right around the corner from here where hookers were invented. Really? And what I mean by that is, like, it, the name of this little park over here is called, uh, what's called Corlears Hook Park. Whoa. And back, like, when New York was really just, like, a port city, mm-hmm. it was known by all the dock people that whatever you were looking for, like, a woman, a boy, uh, a person with no limbs, like, whatever you were between, looking whatever, to, yeah, yeah. to, like, get down with, like, you could get that it there. there. So that's where the term hookers came from. Amazing. Yeah. Man. This is a disgusting city. And it's New like, York leading the charge. When you watch that movie, that's why I brought it up, is like, it's really like a great reminder that it's still the Wild West here. This is like a very uncivil country. Yes. Do you mean the country in general or New York? Well, the United States. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. We are, we are monsters. It's disgusting. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) anti-intellectual, just greedy fucks. So fucking greedy. (laughs) Like, like, like maybe the number one, maybe number two criminals of the world. Yeah. Like as a country, as like an imperial country, it's which, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it just, like, will, I mean, just proud fucking ignorance, oh, yeah. violence, aggression, feeling like everything should have a price tag on it. Like, it's right. the worst. Right. I'm only realizing right. this recently. Yeah. There was a, there was a great clip of uh, George H.W. Bush saying <sighs> during the debates leading up to his election, I can't remember what, what it was. It, it was some sort of war crime that happened. I can't remember, but it was like a blatant thing. You know, it was it was probably something like the, the U.S. fucking dropped a bomb on a hospital somewhere mm-hmm. or something. Right. You know, it was like that type of shit. And he was just, you know, to to roaring applause, he was just like, I don't care what the facts are. I will not apologize for the United States of America yep. 
ever. Yep. I saw it. It's like, fuck yeah. It's like, what is wrong with people? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't want to like go down that rabbit hole because that fucking asshole just died the other day. Like, but thank God. I was looking, I was, you know, this morning I was doing that thing where I was like, I looked him up on Wikipedia and then I was like, oh, they got a link to Prescott Bush. I'll look at that. It's like, oh, they got a link to Prescott's death. They got a link to, Pre and like you go back, like it is literally back to the 1700s of just like utterly reprehensible people in that dynasty. It's yeah. a true dynasty of just like filth. Yeah. 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 I, I don't give that. a goddamn. Yeah. There's really nothing to, um, it's weird. It's weird to, well, it's like there's such an ambiguity and. Um, kind of like cloak and dagger, like social etiquettes around, um, like when, when a when a politician dies, yeah, like when they're just truly awful people. It's like, like what is what are the social norms about like going about that? You know, people get really offended when like someone dies. It's like, well, no, this person actually wasn't a hero. You know, they, right? Like, They've done irreparable damage to this world. In yeah, perpetuity to to like you know very vulnerable populations yeah. and things like that. It's yeah, like, yeah. Okay, yeah. This person like when you actually really just look at the facts, like was like a really a scumbag. And so like why are we whitewashing that just because they died? Like how many people died because of them? Right. And and I don't know. People get really uh, up in a huff about it once you like engage into that conversation um, when someone dies. Well, like this fucking idiot that's in office now, like. It's something that has been kind of interesting to me ever since he was elected is, you know, I grew up like super liberal parents. I, I, my, I still, you know, grew up with Reagan as president. I can hear my mom saying that Reagan and Bush are the biggest drug dealers in the United States. Like she always, my understanding of those guys in particular, they're just these like shady fucks. Yeah. yeah. And, but it's got me thinking like, well, but they were like civil. You know, they they spoke like adults, right? Yeah. So I've been like watching like old interviews with like Richard Nixon. I've been watching debates, you know, with like, um, you know, between um, George Bush and Michael Dukakis and like all, all of it. And it's like, yeah, like it's easier to buy them as like real people. Right. You know? Right. right. As like people like this is just this is just what we believe. We're not going to like outwardly show our shittiness. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So it's like it's it, you could look at all the facts. and like, oh, these are just like shitty fucking greedy lizard people. But like we choose not to believe that because like they're dude. I, I worked in a I work in a restaurant and I recently like like two weeks ago fucking served Laura Bush and her daughter. Uh huh. You know, like yeah, W's yeah. wife. Yeah, yeah. And it's, dude, they're not fucking people. Oh, I, I, I believe it. I'm sure they're like, lizards. They're, I'm sure they're like nice and polite when the fucking cameras are on. So they're so stuff, polite. Right? Yeah. When you interact, they're so polite. They're so fucking polite because that's oh, what they are in real life. Oh, oh I yeah. See, okay. Yeah, I mean they're professional. Like that's yeah, yeah. what she's fucking. That's her job to be right, polite. Right. But, like, I always wonder. We'll talk about music. Um, like I wonder. Like, what do you think Donald Trump fucking dreams about? You know? I don't know. I, th I, I actually really think that he, uh, I mean, in a way, it, it almost doesn't matter what I think about, like, whether uh, whether his brain is, is just, like, Swiss cheese from syphilis or right. if it's, like, <laughs> he has, you know, like, a serious degenerative mental illness or whatever you know whatever yeah, yeah, yeah like what's most interesting to me about it is just the degree to which he's confirmed how little um in terms of public discourse uh reality is like a very flexible lens oh yeah and you know you could really 
push that in any direction you want to get whatever you want um get people to do what you want and it's just like what you say the things that happen it 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 actually just doesn't matter Mm -hmm. like like nothing matters (laughs) it's crazy (laughs) it's it's almost it's like yeah it's almost like a performance artist it's crazy yeah yeah i you know my hope well the thing is like so like i was talking to laura bush and she was actually really nice and like like engaging she was like asking me questions and i obviously i didn't ask her this but i was i wanted to be like do you like if you're in if you're in lower manhattan like sleep staying here like do you have weird dreams about like the world trade center the where you're <laughs> where your fucking dingbat husband like authorized the murder of like all these civilians <laughs> like is it weird you know what i'm saying like if i go like i'm pretty I, I if i sleep at my mom's house like i have pretty intense dreams about like family stuff uh-huh. you know like i'm yeah, yeah, like, yeah do these lizards also I, yeah no i don't know it's it's hard to say like I I guess I always wonder like do, do they do they get through that through the same you know like 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 does the banality of of their everyday life and the job that they do kind of um keep the trauma away you know like they're not the ones that are like literally pushing the button to like drop the fucking yeah, I don't know. strike I mean somewhere like I wish you could like observe people's dreams and like I bet Donald Trump, you know, I bet his dreams. He's just like surfing, or like sleeping in a really big bed. It's like in a pile of money. Yeah, just sleep. <laughs> so my hope for him, and this is the last I'll say about that fucking asshole, is that he has a debilitating stroke that oh, leaves man. him completely compromised and in an undignified situation <laughs> where his like stupid comb over has to be shaved off and like someone needs to feed him and wipe him that's like right. my hope for him yeah yeah you know just like a completely undignified end yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and that yeah. he lives to be like 130 like that yeah Man, fingers crossed <laughs> fingers <yeah>. crossed <laughs> Wait, so how old were you when you started playing the cello you must have been like six months old well i kind of dabbled when i was younger um like we had an upright piano in my house uh-huh. And I got signed up for kind of just like general music lessons when I was younger. So I wasn't really like on a serious track of playing cello or anything like Your that. Your parents so, play instruments? No, no. You know, it's funny. You were, ta- you were talking about politics earlier, actually, too, because my, both of my parents are actually like pretty diehard Republicans. Really? In the Bay Area of all In places. In Berkeley? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they're not Trump people. Oh, yeah. How the fuck? They're I, American? I, it's, it's funny because I... I think a lot of people don't actually know any Trump people, like, in this area, and I'm, like, I have Trump people in my family. Both your parents are born in this country? Yeah. No, no, sorry. My mom was born in the Philippines. Who have, They have their, a Trump of their own, due to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're buddies. Insane. <laughs> that guy's crazy. And she came here under the auspices of what? Why did her family come here? Well, it was like a GI thing. Right. So, her family stayed. She married my dad because my dad was in the military. Right. Military Trump. Right. Um, so he, yeah, he went over there. Um, it's a pretty wide, wide age gap. Um, 21 years difference. So they got married when she was like 19. She's from like a really rural island in the Philippines. Um, her dad was, uh, like, I didn't, I never met him or anything, but uh-huh. from everything I've heard, he was kind of like village witch doctor kind of vibe. Oh, really? Yeah. He was like, like he knew some ancient secrets. Yeah. yeah he was like, you know, he met 
mysteriously met some guy when he was like fighting some war in Japan or some shit. I don't even know what this story was. And like gave him a book. And the book had like spells and stuff. Are you serious? <laughs> and when he came back, he was like deep into this kind of like mystical healing practice. And he would he would heal like you know the people in the village who got snake bites or are like dying overnight from a fever or whatever. And I don't know. He, from what you know, was effective at his work. That's what my mom said. Um, so she 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 be- was she she was very, that. she was very scared of it, and like even to this day, she is freaked out by like anything occult. Um, I can't remember what book I got once when I was in high school. Like it it might have been like, um, like like paintings of like Hieronymus Bosch or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but like on the cover, you know, there was like scenes from um like the hell part of of his mm-hmm. famous triptych. I think it was like some it was something like that. And uh, when she saw the cover, she just like freaked out. She was like so upset. <laughs> she was like, "Get that out of my fucking house!" Really? Yeah. Scared of mystery. Very scared. Yeah. Maybe that's why yeah. she feels drawn to it. I mean, maybe if it was like something you grew up around, and you know, maybe maybe I could understand that it's like it it could be kind of spooky. Yeah. Because I've never actually like interacted with anything. Have you like been to the that. Philippines? No. Yeah. Love to go. So yeah. they're Trump people, but do they have like a sense of like self awareness around it? You know, I. It's funny. Cause I've thought about it a lot because, you, you know, when when things like like this past election happen, you kind of just chalk up like like you see what this person stands for. You see the people who are on TV that are like supporting Trump, and it's just like, you know, these people are fucking morons. Yeah. You know, and then I also think about my parents. It's like, well, they're not they're not fucking morons or anything. It's just like, what is, like, what is causing them to, to, buy into like a political line like that uh-huh i think one part of it is like like party lines run really deep sure yeah, 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 it's yeah. like it's like it's like your sports team it's like your home sports team Doesn't yeah if you're like the, the bottom of the list like you still root for your home team i guess mm-hmm. which is kind of a depressing way of looking at, at politics as like sports but it kind of feels like that sometimes um so there's i think there's that element and then also kind of like like religious values they're both like very christian mm-hmm. and i mean and clearly our president is he's got like a oh, really strong yeah, yeah. moral character but that's where that's where it comes into like reality doesn't matter you mm-hmm. know like you can justify any distortion of reality through however which way you want yeah um so i think like maybe growing up um my, my parents living most of their lives republican um they i think they just that's like the reflex. Although my mom did vote for Obama both times, interestingly. She was kind of one of those like crossover voters. Yeah, my my wife's parents, they're both actually from North Korea. And her dad, I remember we were talking to him uh, after the 2012 election, who ever since he became a citizen has always voted Republican, has like really strong Christian beliefs. Um, and he was explaining that he voted for Obama and so did all of his friends from Korean church mm-hmm. uh, simply because as immigrants they felt like he better understood the immigrant experience of coming here with you know with the sole purpose of earning a living and transcending like the not so ideal situation they came from right 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 which in his case was fucking North Korea you know right um, and that's kind of cool that people v- still vote for stuff like that yeah you know no, for sure I mean like my dad probably not so much, but I think that my mom, um, I think my mom probably could have been convinced to to vote for Bernie. Yeah, I think there were like similar enough. 
I mean, not similar. There were there were enough like meaningful policy things in there that like you know you can like I, I could have a, an intelligent conversation with uh, my parents and try to convince them about things like that. But like then when the party lines come in, it's like there's no fucking way they would ever vote for someone like Hillary Clinton. Yeah, but it's also like I, I just you know this fucking asshole has been able to appoint two Supreme Court justices, and it's like that's ultimately what it's about. Oh yeah, is that totally. they you know yeah. I, I I presume that's what it's about, is and that, that's like a whole generation wrecked. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah. yeah, I mean like maybe we could just like stack the courts or just get rid of the fucking Supreme Court, like the like the fetishizing of. Um, like lawmakers as these like completely neutral arbiters is such bullshit. It's a crock of shit. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's like, become very clear. And that and that conception of like judges like that too, I think, is a fairly recent thing. Like something like the Supreme Court was like called into question much more. Like when you go back like fifty, sixty years, mm-hmm. things like that. Like that was more of a conversation than it is now. I mean, now it's not even a conversation. The idea of like you know abolishing the Supreme Court is like. Like, no one's going to take that seriously right now. Right. But. So, Republican parents bought you a cello? I'm sorry. I, I well, feel yeah. like I'm, I don't so, mean, No, no, no. I'm sure your parents are very kind. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's because it is like. Yeah, no, I've thought about that too because it, it is odd. Um, so, we had a piano in our house. I think the music thing came out of um, like a religious thing. I think that's why there was piano in our house. There was always like hymns. appreciation for music, hymns, things like that. Yeah. My dad, I don't think I ever saw him listening to any music that wasn't Gregorian chant. Really? <laughs> yeah. That, Which, that's when I think amazing. about it now, was like super hip. That was cool. Like, I, and I think that got my ear acclimated to like wanting to hear slightly more odd things. Like we weren't. Like, th- like the one thing that we never heard in the house was like bullshit praise rock. <laughs> you, know, like, you never heard that. No, never. That's amazing. That like my dad would never abide with that. Like that was all trash to him. Well, he's right, and he's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> and uh, yeah. So he was. He would always listen to kind of weird stuff like that, and there was always an appreciation for music in my house. So like you know, they signed me up for. Um... But no pop music, no rock and roll. No, no. I think one of the first CDs uh, me and my brothers ever got was um, Wu Tang. Plan, <laughs> Enter um, the kill bees. Oh, and my dad found it. I remember him snapping it in half. It's like, what is this trash? <laughs> but you know, like we we were always like listening to the radio in our rooms and stuff like that. And we were early early users of the internet. Uh huh. And so, like, I think we got a lot of exposure to like wider. I, I don't know pop culture. I guess at large through the internet. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um. Which, which I think was actually really good. If it wasn't maybe for access like that, then who knows? Like, could be some like freak Republican right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Who knows? I mean, it's how many really brothers do you have? About exposure to different ideas and different people. Well, that yes, you know? that's exactly right. You're exposed to like wacko fucking homeschool crazy people. Then were you homeschooled till I was nine? And what was that? Like, we don't want you to be out there with these secular fucking fucks. Um, part, partially that, and also that, like, a disbelief in, um, the public school system, um, which is obviously a Republican thing. Yeah. Um, not, not that, like, all public schools are great or anything like that, but Most just, of them are pretty but terrible. just the, just, like, the disbelief in any kind of, like, public good, you know, or, like, any kind of, uh, public space that is, like, collectively owned by I a mean, society like or whatever. deeply xenophobic. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I think it's just like, 
I think it's like a real um, paranoia about the government. Maybe my dad was kind of like a um, he was also a, like a survivalist type a little bit. He was um, like <laughs> I remember around the millennium he was uh, oh geez. he was like really into like he was like stocking up the bottle of water in preparation shit. for Y two K yeah 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 totally oh god okay yeah that so it was like it was it was an unusual um, upbringing but like you know he signed me up for music classes and stuff and they were always like actually really really great about um, just sort of letting me try out a lot of stuff so you know I was doing different sports I was windsurfing a lot when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, playing music just like kind of doing random stuff like they weren't ever trying to get me on a track to do what i was what they thought i was supposed to do Mm -hmm. like quote supposed to do um so i would i was doing the school thing and and uh but i was more encouraged to like find value i think in like the extracurricular stuff and i think that's where i started getting really deep into music that's like it's funny it sounds like your parents have like really conflicting (laughs) parts of of their child rearing because i mean that sounds like ultra montessori sort of like give the kid you know options and then let's see what they respond to and like certainly music i'm of the belief and i I imagine you are as well like when you engage with music like you're using the best part of your brain you're using the best part of your Mm -hmm. sensibility yeah totally no it's it's a funny thing that i think i've always felt slightly conflicted about my parents about because like they're total closet hippies like they're they're in Berkeley. Right. They like, you know, they like their artisanal cheese and shit. Oh, really? Like, you know, my dad gets all of his groceries at the farmer's market and is like super into tofu and saitan and whatever. You know? Really? It's like all this stuff. And he like, like literally always wears like Tevas with socks or like, <laughs> like Birkenstocks, whatever, you know? Right. It's like, you would think he's a very stereotypically Berkeley person. And the dude reads like voraciously and I can never figure out like any rhyme or reason as to like what or why he's reading something because it will ping pong from just something totally nutso right wing like some alex jones fucking bullshit to... yeah just like crazy shit and he watches fox news but then he like Ugh. he'll he'll read like real shit like he'll read like academic like anthropology books so it's just like it's this i like i, I can't define him he's like right. one of the weirdest dudes i've ever met but like really kind of like a deep dude really intelligent but you know very conflicted and just like you can't put him in any box it's really interesting yeah but i'm yeah i I am really grateful that they they let me do all kinds of stuff and so when did you first start like when when did it become clear that the thing with the cello was clicking um i i always kind of did it pretty casually through school and through high school and um but what is casual relationship because i feel like I mean, I did it as, like, a serious extracurricular. It was, like, I wasn't on the... I was never put on a path, which, like, I think a lot of um, maybe, like, naturally talented string players get put on in classical music, which is, like, you're going to be a soloist and you're uh-huh. going to be playing fucking Vivaldi in front of the orchestra. Yeah. You know? No friends. No you're, friends. You'll become an alcoholic yeah. and yeah, a exactly. sexual deviant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's going to happen anyways. Right. But... <laughs> Yeah, like I was always encouraged more to to engage with music like in a slightly more social way. So yeah. just like playing in youth orchestra with other kids, playing in chamber groups and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Never just like sweat away in the practice room by myself. You play in church? No, no, no. Okay. I just I think I played maybe like twice or something like that. Okay. But I think I was I would feel uncomfortable like performing in a church service or something. And mm-hmm. probably my dad would too. Oh really? Yeah. 
he's like he's like pretty hardcore uh protestant so it's like very much about um i don't know i just felt the whole vibe was like like you have to have the most uncomfortable pews you possibly can you have to like just totally like eviscerate any sense of like i don't know comfort and joy maybe like self also like like the idea of like self-promotion or like complaining about yourself i'm down with that yeah like like you know just kind of be chill <laughs> yeah 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 no, like, I'm, i, I can get like on board deal with, with it and and uh i don't know figure it out right but yeah so like any kind of like ostentatious display of like you know self-promotion or like this is how good i am at something like like that was never but you went to juilliard right yeah yeah that i think that was when i started really taking the cello seriously i like, mean i would hope so <laughs> yeah like i it was kind of, it was kind of stupid like i was really on the fence about whether i would go into music when I was applying for mm-hmm. college. Um, so I, you know, I applied to different conservatories. I, I think I put in, in an application for like University of Michigan. Um, and I was still at a point where I was like, oh, maybe I could do like a more normal thing. I don't know. Like what? I don't know. Maybe you can go into science or like medicine or something. I don't know. Right. Like I didn't figure that out yet, but I wasn't sure if music was really what I wanted to do. Um, or I could just like be a bum and do nothing. Yeah. Which would be, fine too right (laughs) and um i ended up i ended up getting into juilliard um kind of i feel kind of by luck and i wasn't really convinced that i had like honestly gotten into juilliard like i felt like i kind of like slipped in what what does that mean well i guess i i had i was one year behind well actually okay actually no it reminds me my first my first year of auditioning, I did not get into Juilliard. I got waitlisted. So I did one year at the San Francisco Conservatory just kind of like figure out my shit. I just kind of fucked around and didn't really do that much. Um, I was playing a lot of music that I liked. And I was studying with um, this cellist that used to play in the Kronos Quartet, Jenny yep. Culp, who was great. Yeah. And um, I decided to give it one more shot. And I really stupidly like kind of told myself like, well you know, I'll see what happens and I'll sort of take this as a sign whether I should really seriously pursue this if I get into some schools that I want. Um, and I got in that year. Um, I was, I think I was feeling a little behind because I was one year behind that made me restart as a freshman. Mm. And, um, I think like everyone else was, you know, they had started their instruments when they were three, like they had been really seriously doing like, like going to the best teachers. There were people that were like flying, to different states to study with a particular teacher from when they were like just 12 sculpted into virtuoso right so i felt like i hadn't had that type of exposure of like really high level training or whatever or like Uh taking it really seriously so like my undergrad there i I basically just told myself like i'm going to like really shed and just you felt like you needed to catch up yeah and i was just like i'm going to like whittle down this craft um, the best I possibly can, and then see uh-huh. what happens after that. But was and, it? Yeah. Would you say it was like a healthy sense of like I'm? I need to improve in my music, uh, my musicianship, or was it like like a self consciousness? Like oh fuck, I hope they don't. I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, I think the the end result was really good. Yeah, I don't know if it, like I had so much balance, but I was still playing around in the city quite a bit. Like, um, what do you mean, like freelance gigs? Yeah, like doing gigs, um, trying to like do as much new music as I could. Um, so I had, I kind of had that life trying to like get, ex- like expose myself to as much new music. You were drawn and, to that stuff. 
Yeah. Charles and, Warren in and yeah, everything. Yeah. This is everything I possibly could. Um, and, but then, you know, kind of during the day I was just, I would just lock myself in a practice room and just practice really like, I, f- I felt this necessity almost that like I had to figure out how to approach, you know, like the great masters of the, p- of the past, like how to really approach Beethoven, how to approach Brahms, how to approach Bach, stuff like right. that. And I think it was, it was good for me that I did that. I think it kind of fucked me up a little bit. I In was what way? Like, well, I was just practicing so much and like that was all I did besides play gigs. Right. And so I was just like, it was, I was kind of just like shut the outside world out. It was just like only music. Oh, that sounds great. So it was, it was, it was really good in retrospect um, uh-huh. for my music. I don't know if it was great in terms of like developing meaningful relationships with the people around me in school, but I think also Juilliard is a terrible place for that in general. Yeah. Everyone's kind of in that world. A little right. Bit. It doesn't seem like that's the, the central yeah. goal there. But I would, i I feel really lucky that I felt that then and not when I was leaving school. Right. Cause I, my high school experience, middle school experience, like I think I got out of my system a lot of the bullshit that people have when they first get to college. Like smoking and drinking? Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I was like a terrible high school student. Yeah. I went through all the all the stuff, got in a lot of trouble and really? got kicked out of school and What was the worst stuff. trouble you ever got in? Uh if you don't have to talk about it if you don't want I to. I think I got you know, I got arrested in LA. As a teenager. I got that was a lot of trouble. Yeah. I got in. <laughs> yeah. It was it was it's kind of a long story, but we we were kind of camping out on a beach uh-huh. which in orange county i guess close <laughs> yeah. at a certain point and um we just had we had so much shit on us we had like one person had coke on them and, and we had a lot of alcohol a lot of pot and yeah we and we were all underage we had like this kid's parents car with like whippets on us <laughs> <laughs> and, and this cop yeah this cop rolled up and like it's like we smell marijuana the beach is closed like we're searching your trunk it's like fuck. Okay, so we're like sitting, sitting in the back seat of a cruiser, and they're just like pulling stuff out of the trunk oh, of the fuck. car. And uh, it was weird. It was kind of like a commercial. It was like, you know, the berry lights are flashing. There's yeah. it's like reflecting off the Jack Daniels bottles. We're just sitting <laughs> in the back of the cruiser, just thinking how fucked we all are. It was so funny though. We 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 had been driving around Southern California all day, just like fucking around, doing nothing, and when they were pulling stuff out of the car, it was, it was just this joke. Cause it was like, started off with, it's like, Oh yeah, there's the weed. It's like, Oh, there's the alcohol. Uh, there's, some, there's the Coke. There's it's fireworks. Like, it's like the start of fear out. and loathing in Las Vegas when they're going to <laughs> <laughs> got uppers downers. Yeah. <laughs> no, then they started pulling out like fireworks oh, and Jesus. then they pulled out, um, guns uh not a machete a uh a tomahawk we had a tomahawk <laughs> were you guys like fans of hunter s thompson was that like the <laughs> i don't know what was going on and it was but the funniest thing is like the very end when they're pulling stuff out like you could just see the cops looking like increasingly going from like oh this is routine like uh-huh. teenage bullshit to like looking more disappointed like fireworks weapons and the last thing before that was this thing like um it's called a whizinator because one kid was on probation and he had to get drug tested, so he had this fake dick that was connected to, like, a catheter bag. Are you serious? So he could fill it up with someone else's urine to pass the drug test. And so he pulls this, like, you know, after all this shit he pulls out, he pulls out this, like, fake big dick. fake dick. He's like, what the fuck are you kids into? <laughs> <laughs> so we spent the night in jail, and, like, they called their parents shit, and my mom was so horrified. It was... 
Yeah. I mean, it was just kind of embarrassing. But I, like, I'm glad. Did I, they tell your mom about the fake dick? Uh, they told him about everything. Did she ask about the fake dick? Well, she was already paranoid that I was gay. She was just like, she used to have, she used to like wake up and have like night sweats. And right. Like, she woke me up once in the middle of the night just like weeping. She had a bad dream. Like she woke me up. She's like, JJ, are you gay? I'm like, what? <laughs> just like, back <laughs> off. <laughs> but I still, I still like mess with her sometimes. Just like. Still to this day. Oh yeah. Yeah, like, you should. I'll, like I'll, I'll call her and just like, mom, I got, mom, I got to talk to you. I, um, I need to. I need to tell you about my boyfriend. She's like, oh, God. <laughs> Good, man. So funny. She's, that's she great. She still that you buys do. it. <laughs> every time. Every time. Oh. It's pretty good. But So you got all that shit out so of your system. I got it all out of, out of my system. Yeah. And I feel like on some level, I got like that way of, of practicing and really just like entering the shed uh-huh. comes from a place of like slightly, um, being existentially terrified of like what I'm like what am I gonna do with this? Sure. Um, like I have to I have to find myself in this music and like figure out what I'm doing. Um, so I'm really glad that I got that out of the way early. I mean, obviously, it would be a huge uh, <laughs> mistake to like recommend this trajectory to a kid. Like, look, go fucking do a bunch of drugs as a teenager, <laughs> like have unprotected sex. And then when you have a bit of that experience behind you, focus on your instrument. But it sounds like it might've oh, been man. to your benefit. I, honestly, if I was doing, if I was in that phase, like in college in New York city, Oh, forget like it. you could really get in a lot of crazy trouble. In oh, New whatever you want. I it's mean, here. Like, yeah, it's all here. I'm glad that that was sort of in the rear view mirror by the time I got to New York. Yeah. Like, I'm sure I missed out on some types of crazy experiences I could have had in New York City, but, like, I'm I'm not really missing that too much. No. Like, whatever is in the city is there for me now, but, like, I don't feel like I have to go fucking nuts right. all the time. Right. Um, was Fred Sherry at Juilliard when you were there? Yeah, he was why I went. He so you went, because, yeah, I mean, Fred's the guy. He's the man. He's yeah. the guy. Yeah, he's great. And he was an amazing teacher. It was funny, too, because I, I thought we would, like, sorry, I thought we were going to just work on, like, the craziest new stuff when we got together. That's what you wanted to do? Well, that's what I thought we were going to do. Um, but mainly, we actually just kind of worked on old music, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we got really deep into Schoenberg and, and Brahms and Beethoven, like, really kind of a Germanic tradition. Um, and he's the person I really learned how to like read a score from and how to like get into it and figure out how it works, which is now I think what I find the most gratifying, like more than, more than just like getting, getting everything together on the instrument, which is super important, obviously, and just like really shredding as hard as you can. But, um, starting to try to play everything I do with an understanding of everything that's going on around me. Which is something oh. I'm finding way more, way, 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 way more gratifying than just. Could you elaborate on that? Right. Playing. Well, I guess like so much of like when you when I was practicing by myself so much in school, like it was so focused on just like the craft of playing the cello. Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna make this sound. This is the sound that I want to do. Like all this kind of stuff, and like I'll fit in with other people, like whatever. But not really thinking about the piece itself how it stands up on its legs and like under trying to understand that mm-hmm. um and I, i've been finding that to be more rewarding than focusing on my own playing so much mm-hmm. i don't know if that's maybe if it's just like something i'm into right now but 
Was the, the that early experience with Fred, would you say he tailored that to what he thought you needed, or was that sort of his like prescribed path for working with cello students? No, I think Fr- Fred never... Fred never told me how to play the cello, which I appreciated. Which is like, I had to figure out, I had to figure it out on my own. Uh-huh. Which I think, if I had to come up with my own te- technique for myself, then in the long run it'll last longer. Uh-huh. I think rather than adopting someone else's technique. I mean, I remember even straight up asking him once, like, I keep on missing this shift. Like, can you help me with this? Like, how do I, like, how do I approach this problem? And he was like. Man, like, it took me so long to figure that out myself. Like, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going <laughs> to give awesome. my secrets away. It's so and at the good. time, I was like, fuck you, man. Uh, it's so like, good. This is why you're my teacher. And then when I realized it, like, he was actually, I think, teaching me something a little deeper, which is to teach how to really teach myself. Yeah, he's like fucking Yoda. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so he would always have a way of showing you how to approach something, but never telling you how to. Uh-huh which I really appreciate it. And like he would open the doors for you that you could take yourself if you choose to go through them. Right. <laughs> which was great. That's pretty deep. Yeah. It's a, it was the type of teaching that like I didn't even realize was going on at the time. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Which was amazing. And so you said go, <clears throat> going into Juilliard, going in to study with Fred, your interest was contemporary music. Yeah. Who were some of the composers that you were particularly drawn to? Uh, I mean, in high school, I was really deep into Carter. Uh-huh. Carter was a really big thing for me, and also Ligeti. Um, yeah. Ligeti was That's the cat. just like, what is happening uh-huh. here? <laughs> um, and then through that, I, like, I started getting more into like Babbitt and Warnin and stuff like that. Like, really kind of old New York, like, hardcore <laughs> school of, like, that, you know. Notes, notes and rhythms. Yeah, like how uh, much of you being drawn to stuff like Ligeti and and Wern and, and Babbitt was like the intellectual and physical challenge of the music? How much of it was like the the feeling and emotion of the music? I was attracted to the to the visceral quality. Yeah, of it. Um, and and now I'm I'm actually right. I'm in the middle of learning all of the Carter quartets right now. Mm-hmm. So we're my quartet's playing them in uh, the Jack in Quartet. April. Yeah, yeah. So we're like in the middle of it, and this is sort of what I was talking about earlier, just like really understanding how this whole like prism of complexity is is put together um, has been really satisfying to get into. Um, When I was younger, I think there was a more visceral quality that I was attracted to, um, just by nature of like this music was just written at the same time I'm in. Mm -hmm. Like I I can't help but identify with it more Mm -hmm. because You know, like even just the sensation of time in Elliot Carter's music is things that I'm familiar with. Like the way that it freely accelerates and and slows down is much more, um, like at a visceral level, is much more closer to experiences that I can sympathize with or empathize with, like being in an automobile, being in an airplane, something like Mozart or Beethoven. They don't have that flexibility of time because like those experiences like didn't even exist. You know? Did you um, Elliot Carter? He kept writing till the day he died, right? Oh yeah. And did you yeah. in, did you work with him? Or um, meet him or in in a larger ensemble <laughs> setting? Yeah. So I played a concert for his 103rd birthday. Right. Um so I was playing a piece called the Sunbeams Architecture which is new. So me and Mike Nicholas were the, great. the two cellists in the in the string section for that and it was like this piece for a small ensemble and tenor. Yeah. Um 
all based off of some E.E. E. E. Cummings um, poems that he strung together to make a little narrative narrative out of. Uh-huh. Um, so I got to see him at work. It wasn't like really a one on one thing. Right. It was. It was pretty amazing. I mean, Did, he was so lucid. Yeah. When you were first, uh, you know, when, when this attraction towards these these composers that we just mentioned, w- was there an aspect of the fact that they were living composers? Um, I mean, Ligeti would have been still alive at this point, I think. Yeah, I can't remember when Ligeti died. Like two thousand six, early two thousands, or yeah, something like that. Something like that. Um, I can't remember if Ligeti was alive when I was into him, when I was getting into him. Um, you know, it wasn't so much that they were alive. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was just being exposed to these type of like. I guess I, I guess I guess my knee jerk attraction to this music was visceral because, like, say something like Carter was just so like hearing the double concerto for the first time or the cello concerto mm. was just like such a punch in the gut. Yeah, and then hearing things like Atmospheres by Ligeti or yeah. things like that was just like I didn't even know I could access that part of my brain or like uh-huh. feel those things, you know. So it was like I'm hearing them for the first time and I could almost feel like my capacity for feeling things as a human being like growing at that moment you know it's really like you're really accessing a new part of yourself Mm -hmm. and i was like this is the shit like yeah this is what i want to feel all the time and you know of course that doesn't happen every new piece but like when it does that makes all of the effort that you've gone through worth it especially if like you're the one doing it oh god you've helped to like bring it into existence um like that matters so much more to me than than having like a perfectly sculpted performance of of an old piece of music that everyone oh, yeah. else plays as you know and all that music has great value too but like as far as what my what i feel like my purpose is or something like on this very small amount of time i have on this planet then like that feels really good do you yeah i'm gonna go ahead and say no no uh i mean do you spend much time going back to like you know Bach cello suites or any of the stuff? Oh, that's, absolutely, yeah. As a player, yeah, and no, and absolutely. going back to it, having you know, you know, spending this time with Zorn and all these you know like really intense you know modern composers, like, is it does it feel like a like like a restful homecoming or? I feel, I feel more sympathy between the composers that I work with now and the composers that I have like always idolized from the past. Yeah. Um, and I think at the end of the day, like someone like Bach was a gigging musician, you know? Yeah. And he was just like rattling off these masterpieces like in a day or whatever. Just, and he wrote so much music, someone like Haydn or Mozart, like we've fetishized this music so much that we get into like, you know, fights and rehearsal about, you know, like, what does this little dot mean? Well, in this edition, it's not a dot, it's a little wedge. Yeah. What does it mean? Like, I feel pretty confident that they would be laughing at us having those conversations. Taking the the music that seriously. Yeah, rather than going for, like, what is the essence of this music? Like, how could we make this sound like we're spinning it out in real time? Like, almost like we're improvising it and, like, giving it that human um, um, element to it we're going to like get fucked up about the details on the page. Like for them, like they didn't even have scores, like right. they would just write parts. And 
first like say a string quartet like Haydn was the first person who actually like had his music published in score format before that no one knew no one had any idea like what the other person had and their and their method of like proofreading their quartets for publication was at the end of the day with their friends after having gigged all day or written music all day like probably drunk just like sight read through it and probably their concerns were like are the right notes there? Are the right rhythms there? All right, good enough. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like this idea of perfection yeah. is is such a like an absurd idea. Yeah, like, these people like Haydn and Mozart sat down in quartet. They would just read shit down and have fun, and like that was it. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's I think a conversation. I mean, I'm totally like out of my element with most of this stuff but i feel like there's a conversation to be had about like the business of publishing scores which later turned into the business of recorded music and the importance to codify things yeah so that you have uh you know a an object that can now become retail right uh, well yeah you have to like accumulate stuff <laughs> you have to be able to own stuff and sell stuff and right. money off stuff Right, but yeah. it's funny when you think about it like that because it's like all it's like oh yeah, music notation really is just hieroglyphics. Yeah, like you really are just trying to like well, express okay. something on paper. I mean, that's the most amazing thing about working with living composers that has um, really revealed so much about working on old music too. Is that every single composer that I've ever worked with has a different relationship to notation. Mm-hmm. Everything means different things to a different composer, and ultimately, like, there's really no way of knowing purely off of just the information on the page um, what exactly it is you're trying to get out, unless you could actually just ask them and work with them. And s- probably 99% of the time, composers are so willing to to change things in their score. It's not like they came down off the mountain with their piece on like you know, two tablets, Mm -hmm. um, there is a, there is a back and forth and there's flexibility in notation and there's room for interpretation. And, um, that was really liberating to go back to old music that way. Mm -hmm. And, and just having had worked with living composers and knowing how, you know, flexible often they, they can be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and like when you go back to that old music with this, this, it, from this perspective of being informed by that experience, does it, I mean, how much do you feel like you can vary the tempo, the, the time, the, you know, when you're listening, when you're playing something like, you know, again, like the Bach cello suite that is so, it, it's such like a solid and, and, and thing that exists on its own. Do you feel like yeah. you can? Uh, yeah, no, I think I, I feel like I, I can't, in... I mean like one, like Bach is dead. Yeah, he everyone plays Bach, yeah. and everyone does it in such a different way. Like you could feel the gravity of that, of like the tradition and the expectation. I think I I know like a lot of people feel this way, and I definitely feel this way too. But like just the gravity of of you know centuries or decades of interpretation and what people expect can really fuck you up in terms of what you feel free to do. Yeah. Um, even in these pieces where the notes are the same, it's like there's this second layer of expectation where it's like, well, everyone does this one thing here. That's like the that's, that's the, the thing. That's the thing people do, and it's like, oh fuck, no wonder why people are bored. <laughs> <laughs> so playing the same music, doing it the same way. Yeah. Why? 
Right. Well, I can't think of that many other like art forms that is so into reproducing the same shit over and over. Most of them are. Really? I mean, I yeah, dude. I think like. Like you know, I'm re- I'm really into film, and I'm getting more and more into film. And the more I get into film, you're like, oh yeah, there's only like from each country like 20 dudes. Everyone else sucks. Yeah. Like as far as directors, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like obviously right, a very right. gross, like a ignorant thing I just said. But it's, like, there's an element of truth to it. It's like uh-huh. people, you know, I was gotten this argument with someone I work with the other day, and you know, they asked me about some stupid fucking movie if I'd seen it, and I was like, no, dude, like I I don't like shit. <laughs> and uh, they were like, like yo, you're so condescending. And I was like, no, like dude, I haven't. I've only seen like 10 Ingmar Bergman films. Like uh-huh. I still have like 150 more to go. Why for right. for even a tenth of a second when I consider watching like fucking Fast and Furious or whatever like you're asking me, you know? Right, right There's so right, much right. shit. Right. And you know it's going to be shit. You like, know it's going to be yeah. shit. So like most of the time like you have someone interpreting, you know, classical music. Yeah, it's like they're they're you know, I don't know. I'm out of my element, but Yeah, well, I mean, maybe maybe those two things have a like what you're saying with like, uh, f- you know, film for mass consumption, and also like the the face of classical music. Because I, I think we're th- how we're talking about classical music right now is we're sort of talking about like orchestra, orchestra yeah. programming stuff like that. Um, that those things are are very much geared towards like public consumption, mm-hmm. and it has to be, um, you know, there's the constant worry about money in classical music. That's why people don't. That's why orchestras don't program uh, contemporary music. I think because they don't see money in it. They don't see money in it because it doesn't bring in the audience, or because it takes too much to mount. Because it's not like I mean, it might be a complex. I think it's a complex problem. It's like like audiences who go to orchestra concerts are groomed to expect the same pieces over and over again. So the people that buy like the season tickets are going to come back and say, "Hey, I don't want that weird shit at my concert." Yeah, exactly. Right. But uh, I mean, I think that you can say as a curator or someone who's running an organization, you know, you can. I think your audience can be whatever you want it to be. I mean, like, what is the audience? The audience is like this boogeyman that people use to justify their own fears, right? Right. It's just like, oh, the audience doesn't like it. It's like, well, who's the audience? Like, how do you know what they're feeling or who liked it and whatever? Just because, like, one person said they didn't like it? What about this? Like, did you take a survey of the whole audience? Right. Is that going to be the same the next day? Um, And it it could be kind of condescending to dumb down Oh, completely. Um, to your audience. But do, have you... Uh, but, like, would say a thing like... Like, you would never expect someone who was going to, say, like, issue Project Room or something like mm-hmm. that to expect something that they're already super familiar with. Um, right? I might disagree with you. <laughs> really? I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't want to be, like, shit-talky or anything, but I don't know. I don't find, like a lot of programming and you know whatever whatever the convergence the confluence of you know new music and underground music and uh, you know that's it's a lot of pretty predictable stuff and wow but it wouldn't be like at the level of say like jazz lincoln center or something like that you know what i mean i mean it's too because they're like you're getting into almost like historical performance yes i I would assess it as something like that yes you're right you're right you're right which I'm not saying is a bad thing or anything. I'm just that's you know I, I remember I, it, I, I was at this um, I heard this master class that was a conversation between John Zorn and Terry Riley. Interesting. And have you ever heard them together? Uh-uh. Oh, it's fucking hilarious. You know, it's like vaudeville. But um, so one of the kids in the audience asked 
they, they directed the question to Terry Riley of what advice do you have for a young composer who's trying to build um, build an audience or attract an audience? And both he and Zorn shook their heads and they were laughing, looked at each other, and they were like, "What are you fucking? The audience comes to you. You don't try to like, build it. What are you talking about? You know?" Right, right. So the idea of like, I do think a lot of people are concerned with like, how do you build an audience? How do you sustain an audience? How do you? And it's interesting to see how different people approach it it's frequently disheartening you know and to be completely i hope i'm not like talking out of turn here like i know for a fact that like issue project room does do a good job of of building an audience uh, more so than you know other concert presenters of a similar stature you know who i think arguably do better stuff Uh um and so the question is, well, what are they doing? Like, I do think, you know, I think pandering looks different in many ways. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm, I'm probably less familiar than you with. And I'm totally unfamiliar maybe. with the way yeah, that, yeah. you know, the, I, I know from, from friends in the classical world that I hear, you know, constant frustration with getting from point A to point Z uh-huh. because there's a lot of shit in between. Yes. Z being the concert and like getting a check for it. Right, right, right. I mean, have you observed a lot of the bureaucracy and the stuff that goes into it? Of, like, classical presenting? Yeah. Um, I mean, not... Well, yeah, a little... I mean, I, I, I remember the difficulty of... Well, I curated a concert for the New York Phil Biennial in 2016. Okay. And so that was a set of three concerts um, kind of focused on <coughs> music of Ligeti. That was and, your choice to do the music of Ligeti. Yeah, that was something I wanted to do, and kind of using Ligeti as a kind of lens to look at just just a few things that are going on now, because I feel like Ligeti has had universal imprint on all kinds of musicians, and in so many different ways. You could take just like one bit of Ligeti and focus on that for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. you know, as like a musical resource. Um, and so we were doing these three concerts, and it was like a three-way... Um, presenting thing with the New York Phil, uh, the Met Museum, and the Lucerne Festival in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And just to get one wheel turned to do like one thing, I mean, it's really, you're pulling a lot of weight. There's no like organizations that right. big. It's really slow. And I mean, I could see why it's easier to like, you know, I, I could sense that with big organizations, like you could see a familiarity or a comfort with like, these are the well-worn paths Mm -hmm. and like we can get things happening quickly. If we just stick to this thing, we do something out of that. It's like, Oh, we have to like bushwhack. Are they (laughs) happening quickly? You know, it's funny. I've used this example before, but you know, years, you know, like with Zorn, right. Someone we have in common. Yeah. Um, I've done a couple CDs for the label, you know, did like an Arcana thing. Mm -hmm. used to manage the stone and you work with John, you know his email style. You send him an email, you get a response, you know. Ten seconds te- later. Ten seconds yeah. later. But we would, you know, for stuff around the stone, for stuff about, you know, putting out a CD, you know, an email would start. And clearly, we're both very clearly sitting on our computers because, you know, we're just firing emails back and forth. Maybe we'll get on the phone and talk about something. But within 15 minutes, the kind of decisions will have been made that in one of these organizations will take fucking six weeks, you know? Right, right, right. And I can't, you know, and because he kind of like groomed me to see things that way, 
in a lot of ways, when I'm dealing with any kind of organization and things are taking forever, I can't help but in my mind picture like some dude sitting at his desk eating a sandwich. Right. Like not responding to an email right. and it makes me want to throw my computer against the wall. Right. <laughs> now, I, I think with someone like Zorn, like things can happen so fast because the people who he's interacting with, like he trusts them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like you could do things really fast with people you trust if you trust their ideas, trust their opinions and stuff like that. And it makes me wonder if that maybe, you know, in a larger organization that you have to work with a team with people, you may maybe don't necessarily know them or you don't right. trust them or, or whatever. Um, or there's like, there's a hierarchy that is very slow um, and kind of at arm's length with each other. It's not just people just like rattling off like really creative ideas and stuff. It's like, you have to have so many, so many people involved in it mm -hmm. and maybe not everyone knows and trusts each other. So it could be, yeah, it could be kind of a slog to like get things, get things going and, and doing interesting things. Um, but right. Yeah. So by the time you wrapped up at Juilliard, what were you looking at ahead of you? Um, well, I mean, I was already playing around the city quite a bit mm -hmm. and just doing, you know, playing with the new music ensembles, playing with my friends here and there. Um, was Fred, uh, helping place you on certain things? Uh, Fred, I mean, Fred got me my first gig in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, like everyone else's gig stories that just turns into two and then three sure. or whatever and um so yeah i was just doing that for a while i was i was kind of at a crossroads like what i was trying to do with myself i think i was i was getting really deep into like trying to do more solo work at that time so doing more solo concerts or were you commissioning people uh, i'd commissioned a few people at that point yeah, yeah. i found it this is something um, interesting that I found out once I joined Jack, um, I, it was, it's so hard to commission people as an individual. Like you're so reliant on donors or organizations, which is, we were just talking about is such a pain in the ass, um, to now be in a group that is organized as a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to commission composers. How so? There's so many grants that are oh. specifically geared towards, um, commissioning that are only for nonprofit organizations. Really? So it's like, we could actually just get this money to, to do it ourselves and not have to constantly ask people to commission for us. Mm -hmm. So that was just like a huge, cause before you were just Jay, the cello player. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, Hey, do you want to write a piece and maybe I can find some money? Maybe the presenter will chip in. I don't know. Right. It's just like this disorganized mess. You know? Sure. And so, yeah, it was, it was a kind of a pain in the ass. I was trying to do more solo stuff and I was like getting really depressed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I didn't realize until I started doing it, how much I hate traveling alone. You hate traveling alone? Oh, what do you mean? Oh man, I I cannot stand like going to if I'm playing concert in like Toledo, Ohio, or something like that. Perfectly tolerable if I'm over there with other people, like playing music with other people. It's uh -huh. fine. If I'm playing by myself, I have to like just go s sit in the hotel room by myself. Like I want to jump out the window. Yes, yeah. like, I get so shut in and depressed. I'm just like depressed. What the fuck, am I doing with my life? Like, because... why am I here in Toledo, Ohio, by myself? Right. It's like, I'm going to play this shit for people. Like, I don't know if they even care. I don't care if they care or don't care. Like, why am I doing this? I get re like really dark about it. Yeah. 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 And it's hard. I, I find it that it, <clears throat> it starts to affect my my music making, too. Because, like, if I'm getting up on stage, I'm, like, I have this attitude. Just, like, I don't even feel like I give a shit. Like, how can I make these people give a shit? All right. Like, like how can I find the motivation to, like, actually play like I mean it? Or, like, I, I'm, like, wanting to share it with people. 
I mean, cause, I, and I don't know why, like why right. that happens when I'm by myself, but I, I have a hard time doing that. Well, you're, you're, I mean, I, I would suspect that, you know, when you're by yourself, like you kind of have a little more time to look in the mirror and maybe things that you've been choosing not to look at or things <laughs> yeah. that like aren't even really there start popping out. Like I, yeah. I know, yeah. But when you're in that moment, you know, if you're reading from a score, do you feel you beat yourself up if you're just kind of like reading the score? Yeah, I mean, if I'm even if I'm going on like on autopilot, like I mean, I've done a lot of solo concerts, all improvised, Mm -hmm. and so I'm very well familiar with the mind fuck of you know if I if I get in my own way, whether it's with like depression or or whatever not being focused and, and present to make music like I'm, I'm well familiar with what that looks like yeah but but not to have a score where it's like well you know i'm fucking thinking about like my ex-girlfriend let me just right. you know right play right. this system down yeah <laughs> not... that's that's when it starts feeling really bad like when yeah. you just are like reading something and you just see what's on the page is like actions to execute right that sucks that really sucks um i mean i think that happens less and less once if I'm playing something that I personally really like to be playing. Um, but also just the act of making music with other people, I find to be like much more, much more satisfying. Just like music as a social yeah. thing <clears throat> is much more interesting to me now than like, I think there was a certain point where I like the idea of doing a lot of solo concerts was really enticing because it just, they just pay a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was you know, I was making a decent amount of money doing that, but I was also just like really depressed for like two years. Like, just, like why am I, yeah. why am I doing this? Like if I'm doing it to make money. I should be doing something else. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I kind of, re- I was really reevaluating like what I was doing and sort of around this time when things were kind of coming up to a four, um, with just thinking about this stuff, um, I got a call from someone in the Jack Quartet that Kevin was leaving and it was, it's like, yeah, this seems like a door. You were meant to excited take. to get that call based on the feelings that you've been having? Well, I was I was a little conflicted about it at first because there was a level of, you know, like I think going through Julia, there's such an intense, like, atmosphere of, of like, once you're doing this track or you're going to do this whole thing, like, you do it until you make it or not. It's like, if I'm coming to terms with the fact that actually this is making me unhappy to doing uh-huh. something else. It's like, well, am I giving up? Huh. You know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. But then at the end of the day, I think it was just the thing. It was like, am I really enjoying this? And the answer was no. Well, there you go. The answer was no. I was getting so much pressure from like concert presenters to like fill the slot in of like being like a good young boy, rising star of the cello. Like he's going to play Brahms for you. You know, it's like, uh, I, I don't know. Like, uh, that's cool, but I'm actually not that interested in doing it. Like, I really want to be, like, 90% new music and, like, maybe 10% playing the old stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's that's more what my life looks like now. Had the idea uh, like, I don't of... want to be, like, like you know, like, showboated for a bunch of... Like a monkey in a cage. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Like, that's the part of classical music that I just, like, I fucking despise it. So but gross. what about then? So, uh, what's different? I mean, I just hypothetically or not hypothetically what's different so i was listening to the cd this morning uh henna's henna's pan uh uh henda pan sorry the cd that is like zorn featuring you in new compositions Uh that's what it is right yeah it was those are all pieces that um were involved 
that I was involved with in the yeah. premiere and recording and stuff. Yeah. yeah, but that does that that must feel different than because that was still kind of presented as like rising young cellist Jay Campbell. But that was music I really personally cared about, and the music go. that like written by someone who I really personally care about. Yeah, and that means more to me than like any concert of you know that that's like of any importance yeah the presenter is like trying to tell me what to play what i can or can't play and like how they're gonna i don't know just you know trying to trying to be put into um a box that you don't want to be in just is not something that i want to i I don't want to like propagate that i mean i don't know if you can answer this or not but like you know with all music with I, i believe i'm pretty sure maybe i'm you know overreaching here but like what we ultimately cherish over time and what we really care about are the musical, the famous musical relationships, like hearing Coltrane with Elvin Jones, you know, that's like mm-hmm. a super specific thing that yes, Coltrane is like the best sax player ever, but Coltrane with the quartet is like the best jazz quartet of yeah. all time. And I feel like that's true with classical music. You know, mm-hmm. you can, you can, you can, um, build these relationships that become like such a hyper specific thing. Like, yeah. like a, a real string quartet is a group of people that play together over time. Ad hoc yes. string quartets are not that compelling to listen to. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Did, were you excited about joining a, a quartet that where you were looking forward and saying, "Okay, this is going to become a"? Yeah, because they have. I mean, I think Jack has that type of approach to just making sound itself. Like you hear a polish um, in a really great string quartet, where you just you know how the other people play. Yeah, you know, it really is extensions of ourselves. Um, and often we don't have to really talk about things. Um, but also just the music that we, um, you know, apply that to Mm -hmm. is interesting to me that we're not doing it just for, um, I like to think that we're not doing it for our own egos, that we really are just doing this to support composers and support music that we believe in and have a really good time doing it. Well, when you joined Jack, you weren't, it, it was two members had left. Yeah. So Two, you, yeah. So what? You and Chris Otto was that who? Uh, no, me and Austin. Right. Yeah. Right. So it was like, did, did was there a conversation about how much to to um, sustain from the previous quartet and how much was going to sort of shift? Well, I mean, I think the aesthetic of the group has stayed the same. Yeah. Like in terms of what we're interested in, um, I think it's a pretty different sounding group now. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just. I think that's just the course of personnel changes. Yeah. Like, I think you can't like reproduce what it was. You just have to help create something new. Mm-hmm. I think we've, we've sounds, we found something really good, um, that works for everybody. Um, but just like the breadth of, of what we get to work on is so wide. Um, and there's just so much music that I'm really interested in that we get to play and, composers that we get to work with like mm-hmm. i haven't felt um like this degree of musical satisfaction in a really long time which is just that's great it's really good yeah because you guys are are picking what your path is yeah 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 are you teaching i taught at vassar for a year actually before i joined uh the group but we we do go to universities a lot and work with grad students like, like master kinda, class stuff well, we kind of like work through their pieces, we record uh-huh. it, and like kind of give them feedback on their pieces. Yeah, um, and 
yeah, we record it. I think that ends up in a lot of people's portfolios, applications, and stuff like that. So I, it's it's something that I'm really glad that we do. Yeah. Um, it's I think it's something really useful for young composers. Like you just have to get your stuff recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to apply for stuff if you don't have anything recorded. Right. So. Right. Do you like recording? I would. If I could have a life where I only record, I would choose that. What is it? No, just like I, I like recording a lot more than performing. I love recording. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I th- Maybe. Well, I think like the, the way you can get really microscopic about things. Yeah. Is what I like about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can really like the limit is your imagination yeah. and you can really present a sound that is what you're hearing. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was actually something I heard you play one time at um, that really like like re like validated that that idea to me, which was there was this piece that you played in you know when Zorn does those uh, concerts in that apartment for like oh, the yeah, small yeah, invited yeah. audience. Yeah, yeah. There was a solo cello piece, Autumn Leaves, Autumn. <laughs> uh, that would be funny if it was Autumn. It was that would be funny. Uh, it was Autumn Leaves, Autumn Rhythm, Autumn Rhythm, which is yeah, a Pollock painting. Yeah, yeah. But like, you know, I fucked up. The piece is really fucked up, <laughs> and you know, that's like, oh yeah, chamber music is supposed to be in a chamber. You're supposed to be close to it. You're supposed to. Yeah. And I, so I was sitting right beside you, and there's this uh, part in the piece where you take the two bows and you're kind of whipping right. them through air. Right. Right, right. And it's like I'm sitting right next to it, hearing it and feeling the air against me, and it's like this yeah. is as ideal. A listening experience as you're ever going to have right because i'm hearing it like it's it's you're not a hundred feet away or right and so i took that like i very much like took that with me as like any piece of music that i put out as a recording i want whoever's listening to it to hear what i'm hearing right yeah exactly you know? to have that that close to it yeah no i mean on so much so many concert spaces are like are just way too big <laughs> yeah it's like it blows my mind that people are still building like 2000 seat orchestra halls that don't get filled. But from like, a sonic perspective, I feel like those same places they don't I mean, and again, I'm a psycho and like I don't know that my input would be that valuable in that situation, but like I'm thinking specifically when I go to Miller Theater and I'm hearing a lot of contemporary music, uh-huh. I'm like this is really intense music. These musicians are giving everything they have to execute this music. It needs to be 10 times louder. Yeah, well, Miller is a tough space to play in. I know, <laughs> so I know. A, that is a very dry space. It's a very dry space, yeah. but like I saw fucking Dumitrescu do a concert there a couple of years ago. Oh, nice. And it's like, I wanted to go to like the sound guy and just like yeah, crank yeah. all the levels. Like it's right. a, this is violent music. Like it needs to right. actually be felt that way. Yeah, no, I mean the, the visceral quality of music gets lost with, diff- with distance. I mean, I don't know. I would want to hear old chamber music that way too. Just yeah. Like, 10 feet in front of me yeah i think that's the way that it was intended yeah not in like a thousand seat auditorium right like you lose you lose a certain thing um just with distance i don't know mm-hmm. have you recorded much i mean I, I, have you done a jay campbell cd i have one recorded and um it's basically edited it yeah. from a while ago but it was I was just kind of asked to do this thing. Um, it was it was mostly old music actually. It was like WC Beethoven, yeah. Stravinsky, kind of just like older things that I'd, I was really into at that time. Yeah, um, I'm glad I did it. It was like a it was a lot of work. I was I was um, 
I was in like the most micromanagey phase of like practicing at that point. Mm-hmm. So I recorded for like five days straight, Jesus just like Christ. eight hours a day, five days for just like pieces that probably could have done in like a couple takes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't put it out or you did put it out. No, I didn't put it out. Actually. I was like, I did all this work and I didn't put it out. And I was like, I, I was just so into the process that like, I didn't even, I, I think on some like, psychological level like like i didn't even want to share it or something Do you it was, ever like, listen to it was it? like too it was too weird like yeah like to get that deep into something and then put it out i don't know Do you no, yeah yeah I, I might have listened through the editing process when it was all done like i was really pretty happy with it um and then i actually put like i put, i think i basically put a couple tracks of it up on my website or something like uh-huh. that um and that was it. Like, I think I just wanted to go through the process more yeah. than, cause it was like, it was paid for. Right. Um, and I think I'm obligated to release it at some point, but just, <laughs> I don't know. I maybe that's selfish or something, or maybe, maybe that's like nihilistic of me, like you just to assume that like people don't want to listen to it, but maybe that's true. But like on some level also, I just wanted to go through this insane neurotic process of just like every single note is perfect. Yeah. Um, oh, it's like scaling a fucking mountain. Yeah. Have you heard? There's a new um, recording of the Babbitt Quartets. Oh, really? Put out this guy, Eric Carlson. Uh-huh. Um, he teaches at UC San Diego. He um, recorded each note individually and then auto tunes it. It sets like decibel levels for each dynamic. So it's like really truly serialized uh-huh. and then edits it together. And it's, it's amazing. It's good? <laughs> yeah. Wait, 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 so he recorded real string players? Yeah, yeah, so... Were you one of them? No, uh, okay. Mike Nicholas played cello, Okay. Chris Otto played, Amazing. and Eric Carlson plays uh, violin, so he okay. did both violin parts for all all the Babbitt Quartet. He recorded each note? I th- Yeah, I think it was, it was either each note or, like, maybe he did it, like, phrase by phrase by right. the end of it or something. I can't remember exactly what the deal was, but I think it started... Oh, sorry. It started off note by note. <laughs> And yeah, like a truly neurotic, but amazing. Like I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of attracted to that. I kind of want to check that out. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty. Good. I, I've made improvised records like that. I made a record um, a couple of years ago with Nate Woolley and Evan Parker. Uh-huh. And Evan to me is like the guy, you yeah, know. Yeah. So when we made we did this concert, and we we knew that it was going to be recorded for release, and like we'd already established that I was going to like do a crazy mix on it. Yeah. But like I decided that the approach would be like I was nervous as fuck playing with Evan. And so, like, moment to moment, I was doing, like, weird things in the mix to, like, accentuate, like, the intensity of the yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, and, like, yeah, in yeah. several cases, I was like, oh, yeah, I want, I want this to sound, like, really fucking nerve-wracking right, right here. It's, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. distorting something or, you know, turning right. everything else down. Like, yeah. An insane mix. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, there, there are certain things that, like, I, that really works best for it. Like, there was, yeah. this, uh, there was this piece that I was super into, this um, Italian composer, Fausto Romatelli. Uh-huh. It's this piece called uh, Dr. Bad Trip. Um, so it's all this, you know, super fucked up spectral music, um, kind of influenced by different strands of like psychedelic rock and stuff like that. I've, I've played it live and it's really fun to play live, but the recording of it, um, this Belgian group called Ictus mm-hmm. recorded it and it's so produced and it's like so just like they did so much stuff in post. Um, like the bass flute just sounds like thunder. Like it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, and you can't do that live. And it's no. a piece that is actually, I think probably works best on, on recording for that reason. Mm-hmm. But it's, 
I don't know, something that we're maybe as classical musicians are allergic to or something. Well, I mean, yeah. obviously, case by case is how things should be approached. And, you know, number one, I want so badly, if I got like a gazillion dollar grant, I think I would use it to put compressors in every classical <laughs> recording. Because I'm like, no, you guys need to fucking figure out that like music can sound really cool when it's right. like in your face and not a thousand right. miles away. Like but up on up the. But I, you know, I have always wondered, and some people do it, most don't. You know, the idea with most classical recordings is create as transparent a document as possible of an event. Uh-huh. But, you know, as you were saying earlier, you know, you're when you're like studying a piece of music for performance, like you're really trying to figure out like how to make every note matter, how to like really color it as much as possible. Having the ability to create a mix offers so much more ex- uh, expressivity. Yeah. And I, right. I just I don't get why people like stop there. Like, oh, now we just record it. Right, right, like, right. Like you could tell such like a greater sonic story if you want to. Yes. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's oh, I mean, we're we're kind of stuck in the past, and that's really the answer to most of our problems. <laughs> like it's we're we're the last ones on board, like for so many things. <sighs> Maybe that's it's, cool. I don't know. It's I, I feel like I I have less. And less exposure to it just doing mostly new music with jack and yeah. like other projects that i do and stuff but i think definitely like my like trying to propel myself down that route um was just like i you know, almost an allergic to reaction to stuff like that mm-hmm. you know? and just how stuck classical music is yeah like it's but i'm you know i'm optimistic i mean like composers are up to the craziest stuff and i believe in supporting all that and there are so many players who are at such a high level right now oh, it's insane like, that are specifically dedicated to like doing new music yeah and the number of stuff. like upstart ensembles is insane yeah i mean i really think like in terms of like the performers and the composers even though it's not the face of classical music or whatever that i do think we're kind of in it feels like a weird golden period of just like you can trust so many performances that you see and just like this is a very high level product mm-hmm and people are taking it super seriously and are more interested in this than like, you know, going and seeing a Tchaikovsky symphony. Or oh, whatever. it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, it's like I was saying when you first walked in, like I got a call one day, uh, you know, Josh Rubin, clarinetist. Mm-hmm. He's a good friend of mine. He was like, hey, what are you doing in an hour? I'm at Abrams. Uh, I'm running this Boulez piece that I'm going to do at Ojai next week. You want to come check it out? Nice. So I literally yeah. ran like, you know, up <laughs> yeah, two yeah. blocks from my house yeah. and like listened to a world-class performance, you know, that... Yeah. I was like, fuck, dude, that's amazing. And then yeah. I went, you know, I went back home and like, you know, yeah. polished my boots. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a good time for, 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 you know, adventurous musicians who play classical instruments. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I hope it keeps going that way. Yeah. Dude, thanks for coming over and talking. Dude, thank you. For it's been fun. Me. Yeah. Thank you, Jay. Thanks, man. All right. That was Jay Campbell. As you can hear, uh, he's a cat. You dig? He's a cat. He's a he's a he's a fun, interesting, compelling, uh, and just unbelievably talented musician. And I enjoyed that conversation a lot. If you also enjoyed it, check out his website. He's uh, on a lot of recordings. He's playing all around the world all the time. Should be pretty easy to check him out if if you're interested. Go to j-campbell.net. Um, his stuff, man. 
It's it's as good as it gets. J-Campbell.net. Go to the 5049 website. Uh, become a patron. Check out some past episodes. If you sign up for the Patreon, you become a donor, you will have access to the entire back catalog of episodes, which is now, uh, I think, at 88. There's 88 episodes for you to listen to back there. So, so do that. And that's it. Talk to you guys next week. Bye.